There's no scripture reader this morning because it's only half a verse. And so uh, I'll read it to you. The prayer of a righteous person has great power in its work. So you have a test. You didn't know you were going to have a test. This is a surprise, but it's self-graded and you don't have to report it. Uh, so here's, here's the test. On a scale of 1 to 10, with 1 being almost non-existent and 10 being pretty much like Jesus, what, what do you give yourself on the prayer scale? In terms of the health of your prayer life, 10 is basically Jesus and 1 is, what is prayer? Uh, where do you, where do you fall on that spectrum? Go ahead, grade yourself real quick. Uh, don't, you don't have to tell anybody. I can ask you later, but just get a number in mind. What do you, what do you think if we were to poll everybody at Grace Church, if we were to take everyone and combine the scores, what do you think the average would be in this room right now? What do you, what do you think it would be? Now, I don't know the answer to that, but in my experience, having met with many of you and talked with many of you, I'm guessing somewhere between five and six. Uh, I've never met a single person that has said at the end of the day, every day I close my eyes thinking, God, thank you that my prayer life is exactly what you intended it to be today. I don't know anybody that said that. So here's here's the thing. Uh, I think among the reasons that I have heard for why it is five, six rather than eight, nine uh, is uh, among the reasons are, and I wrote these down, um, lack of consistency. I, I just don't pray the amount or with the kind of regularity I know God would have me. Uh, lack of a plan. I, I feel like there are ways in which it ought to be spontaneous and it sort of is, but I also feel like there are ways in which it should be more planned out and specific, and I, I lack that. Uh, another one that, I, that I've heard regularly is a, a lack of understanding of how prayer even really works. My, we'll come to this later, but my understanding of God and how he governs the universe and my understanding of prayer, I just, I don't, I don't know how they match up as well as I would like. That's part of the mystery of prayer we'll talk about later. It's, uh, sometimes I, I feel like I'm, I'm talking, but no one's listening. I, I hear those, those types of things. Well, here's the thing. Our, our passage from James, this, this half verse in James isn't going to address every question you might have or solve every struggle that you've experienced in prayer, but I, I do know that if you will receive it in faith, it'll be a good deal of help in strengthening your prayer life. So what am I referring to again? In the second half of James chapter 5, verse 16, James wrote these words. The prayer of a righteous person has great power in its working. It's such a significant promise. We, we looked at a larger, the larger context in which that verse exists last week. But it's such a significant promise. It's such an important part of the Christian life that it seems like a good idea to take a whole sermon on this. And so here's the thing. There are, there are few things more significant in a mature Christian life than prayer. Of all the things we might discuss in terms of how you grow in your faith or what it looks like when you have, prayer is right at the center of all of that. It is one of the most significant things, and it's also one of the most mysterious things when it comes to living as Christ calls us to. It's significant to help you see, and that it is at the very center of what our purpose in life is. 
why do we exist? What is the reason that we are on earth? Prayer is right at the center of that. I think I can help you to see that from God's word. And it's significant in that God uses it to accomplish things that would not otherwise happen when his people pray. Well, it's mysterious, as I just mentioned, because it doesn't seem logically compatible with certain aspects of God's nature and ours. We'll talk about that as well. So after considering the significance and mystery of prayer, then, it's my hope we'll be in a better position to make sense of what James says here and then practice it in our own lives. All right, here we go. Before I pray, the main point of all of this, what do I want you to take away? What do I hope to establish from the Word of God this morning? The main point of all of this is that God has given prayer to you and to me and to all who call on the name of Jesus as a means of communing with him, of having fellowship with him, and as a means of accomplishing his purposes in the world. Let me say that again. That's a big deal. (laughs) I hope both of these resonate with you. I hope you want to have communion with God, to have fellowship with God, to know him and be in a relationship with him. And also, I I hope you want his will to be done in your life, your family, and this church, and in this world. And prayer is a means that God has given to his people for both of those things. So let's let's pray that through this text and this sermon, God would help us pray. So God, we we love you. We're, We're thankful that you are our God, that you are with us, that you have saved us through Christ, that you offer salvation to all who will receive it by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. We thank you that the good news that these girls just sang and we sang before that together is that it is not based on our works. We were unable to work our way into your favor. Our our sin has separated us from you and we are powerless to reconcile ourselves to you. But you are not powerless to reconcile us to yourself. You've done that in Jesus, in his suffering, in his death, and his resurrection. God, I thank you that through that we become your sons and daughters when we place our faith in you. And in that, you you call us to pray and invite us into your work in this world. And you've chosen to work in certain ways through the prayers of your children. We don't understand all of them. We, we never will, but we see plainly in your word that these things are true. And so I pray that this morning you would help us increasingly to live in light of them, that you would make us a praying people, that our native tongue would be prayer, that the majority of our day would be filled with prayers in our head and our hearts towards you. The majority of our fellowship would express our corporate dependence, our corporate recognition of our dependence upon you. In prayer. I pray that in that we would have fellowship with you and with one another, and that you would do things you otherwise wouldn't through these prayers of ours. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. So, again, I, I said this a minute ago, I'm going to say it again. There are a few things more significant in the Christian life than prayer. I invite you to consider its significance right now from two s- separate Angles And the first is by taking a, a relatively brief but also fairly thorough flyover uh, of prayer in the Bible. And then secondly, 
I want you to see its significance by looking more closely at two specific aspects of how God describes prayer or what God is accomplishing through it. So the first place that prayer is explicitly mentioned in the Bible is in Genesis 20. In their wandering and their sojourning, Abraham and his wife Sarah came to an area called Gerar. That's how you say it. I listened to it like four times this week, and I promised I would remember how to say it, and I already forgot how to say it, but I think it's Gerar. There they, as you probably know, lied about their relationship. It's this foreign city, and and they lied about their relationship. They claimed to be brother and sister rather than husband and wife because Sarah was very pretty, and they were afraid that the king or the rulers would, would take her, which they ended up doing anyway, and then kill Abraham uh, to take his wife. Well, the king of the area did, in fact, notice her beauty and take her in, and his name was Abimelech, and intended to make her his wife, but before he could, God intervenes to protect the, co- the couple and the covenant that he had made with them. God commanded Abimelech not to take Sarah as his wife, threatened his life. And his final words to Abimelech were these. He said, now then, return the man's wife, for he is a prophet, so that he, that is Abraham, will pray for you. And you shall live. That's the first time we see prayer explicitly mentioned in the Bible. And from there, it's explicitly, many more times implicitly or indirectly, but over 300 times from there it's it's mentioned in most books of the Bible and each testament and every genre and in most of the key figures of among God's people. I'm going to give you a, a handful uh, of examples of how we see Prayer. What what are the circumstances in which it showed up? Who who prayed? How did they pray? What did they pray for? Follow with me here, if you would. Genesis twenty five and Genesis twenty five. Isaac prayed for his wife Rebecca because she could not bear children. And First Samuel one ten, we read that Hannah prayed in deep distress with bitter tears because her womb was closed. And we find that kind of prayer over and over in the Bible. God answered them. In Numbers 21, we read of God's judgment having come upon Israel in their grumbling. The response was to call on Moses to pray for them that God's judgment might relent, similar to the Genesis 20 passage, the very first prayer in the Bible. Among many, many other passages in the Bible, one of the things people prayed for the most was that God might turn from judgment, turn away from judgment. They confess their sin to God where we've sinned against you and your judgment is rightly on us, but please grant us repentance and therefore lift your judgment. Over and over and over and over and over, that prayer is prayed in the Bible. There's a remarkable prayer for God's wisdom in Judges 13. and 2 Samuel 7.27, we find David praying another common prayer in the Bible. God had made a covenant with him. He made promises to him to provide land and victory over enemies and even an everlasting throne. And David responded to these promises in a prayerful, in a, in a, in a prayer of hopeful thanksgiving. Hezekiah prayed, you might remember, uh, an exuberant praise in response to the Lord's faithfulness in Second Chronicles. People over and over, God promised blessings and people responded in prayerful celebration. In 1 Kings 8, Solomon prayed for God's continual favor 
but specifically his favor in the form of blessing among his people, his, his presence among his people. Elijah prayed, and it stopped raining on the face of the earth, First Kings tells us, for three and a half years. In Second Kings, Elisha prayed to the Lord, and the Lord raised a child from the dead. The same thing happened when Peter prayed for Dorcas and Paul prayed for Eutychus. Through the prayers of faithful people, God raised people from the dead. In 1 Kings 13, we find a prayer for healing. It's made even more clear. The passages that we considered like last week in James chapter 5, 13 and 14. In Isaiah 38, the Lord uh, added 15 years to Hezekiah's life because he humbly prayed to God in his sickness. And in a similar way, God healed the father of a man uh, when Paul prayed for him in Acts 28. In 2 Kings 6, God granted spiritual sight to Elisha's servant to see the chariots of fire when Elisha prayed. Solomon also prayed, asking God to be gracious to sinners. The first time that I found where there was an explicit prayer for God to be gracious when sinners repent. We find in Solomon, it got answered in Second Chronicles. And we see this again throughout all of the Bible, and especially the New Testament. Acts 8.22 is a great example of this. The Lord returned all that Job had lost and more when he prayed in Job 42. In Psalm 5.2, David prayed for God's mercy in the midst of his enemies gaining ground because of their wickedness. In Psalm 114, David prayed to God because he knew God always. He said, I pray to you always because you always hear my prayers. David prayed for peace for the people of God. In Psalm 121, wicked people, the Bible tells us, pray futilely to false gods. We see this in Isaiah 44. Isaiah promised even that the wicked man will not be heard by God. In Isaiah 16, God repeatedly prohibited Jeremiah from praying for the Israelites because they refused to repent. Relationship between the righteousness of the people of God and God hearing their prayers. James commanded his, or Jesus commanded his followers in a number of ways concerning prayer. He commanded them to pray for their enemies, to pray simply and secret and not to impress people. He commanded them to pray, to avoid praying as if your prayers were to inform God, that God were up in heaven ignorant of the affairs of the world and our prayers were meant to inform him. So don't pray like that. To pray for the Father. Jesus commanded his followers to pray for the Father for more people to proclaim the gospel to the ends of the earth. Jesus commanded his followers to pray that they would avoid temptation to sin. And he also taught on the importance of prayer mainly by regularly pulling away to pray himself. It's remarkable in in looking through the passages in the gospels on prayer. The vast majority of them are Jesus pulling away to pray to his Father all the way to the end. Judas's replacement, he betrayed Jesus. His replacement among the disciples was appointed by God through prayer, the prayer of the disciples. The first deacons were chosen and then commissioned through prayer. So too were the first New Testament missionaries and pastors. After Jesus' resurrection, his disciples took up his practice that he had given to them and withdrew regularly to pray themselves. Paul helps us to understand that because God and his ways are far above us, we don't really know how to pray as we ought. 
We're, we're confused prayers, but we ought to pray anyway, he said, in the knowledge that the Spirit will help us. In 1 Corinthians 11, Paul tells us that there are certain postures and dispositions that are more proper for the prayer of God's people. We find Christians in one area praying for strangers in another area. Christians in Corinth praying for Christians they don't even know in Jerusalem. In 2 Corinthians 9, as well as Paul and other Christians soliciting the prayers of those in other areas. Our prayers ought to be earnest, First Thessalonians tells us. And without ceasing, we see in Acts 10. Our prayers for one another and our prayers in general are ultimately meant by God to bring glory to God as he strengthens the saints and draws sinners to himself in repentance. We're supposed to pray for our governing authorities, we see in First Timothy 2. Interestingly, men and widows are given special commission to pray for God's people. God's people consistently prayed that their evangelistic plans would bear fruit. We read in passages like Philemon 1. God's people constantly prayed in such, in such, in such a way that was meant again above all to show the power of God to the watching world. This is this is an interesting one. Failing to show understanding, husbands, this is for us. Failing to show understanding, honor, and tenderness towards wives hinders our prayers, 1 Peter 3 7 says. 3 John 1 2 tells us that it is good to pray for both the physical and spiritual health and healing of people. And probably the most important passage on prayer is found in Matthew 6 9 through 13 where Jesus taught his disciples to pray, what we call the Lord's Prayer. Grace, the Bible mentions people praying while standing, kneeling, on the ground, laying hands on, and even laying themselves on top of others. They prayed in the mind, and they prayed in spirit. They prayed while awake and in dreams. Prayers were offered at night, all times of night and day. God's people prayed in great joy and sadness and fear and guilt and innocence and relief and hope and doubt. People prayed by themselves and in groups, large and small. They prayed for friends and enemies and strangers. They prayed for things present and things yet to come. Though far from exhaustive in all of this, I think it gives us a fairly good sampling of the place of prayer and really the prominence of prayer in the teaching of the Bible. Combined, we find prayer commanded and modeled everywhere in Scripture. The vast quantity of passages on it, the universal practice of God's people, and the amazing works of God that happened through prayer speak loudly to its significance in the life of God's people. I hope you see that. And from there, we can easily see then, I think, I hope, the second angle of prayer's significance as well. It's its place in the heart and in the work of God. The most significant significance of prayer is that it is the very is at the very heart of our purpose as people on earth. And and that God uses it to accomplish things that otherwise wouldn't happen. Let me tell you a little bit about both of those. Prayer is a key aspect of the very purpose of our lives. 
You want to know what you were made for? Prayer is going to be at the heart of that. Grace, we were made for fellowship with God. What is the chief end of man? To glorify God and enjoy him forever. And in prayer, we get a taste of that, a real taste of that. Prayer is talking to God in the knowledge that he is present to hear, that he lovingly cares, that he truly is responsible for the governance of the world, and that he answers us every time we pray. In other words, prayer is a key piece of our communion with God, which is the very reason for our existence. Indeed, the great promise of of heaven is that we will see God and have a relationship with him face to face, that we will be, that we will know fully even as we are fully known. And our prayers today are a kind of first fruits of that level of fellowship with God. Again, grace, to love the Lord your God with all of your heart and with all of your mind and with all of your soul and with all of your strength is to long to be with God to long to commune and have fellowship with him and to experience his presence continually. Prayer gives us unlimited access to this. So prayer is significant in that it is right at the heart of our very purpose for being. And second, God uses prayer to accomplish things that otherwise would not happen. And the different examples of prayer in the Bible that we just saw, God opened wombs that would have otherwise remained closed. He healed sickness that would have otherwise lingered. He restored life that otherwise would have been lost. He relented in punishment that otherwise would have continued. He provided wisdom where otherwise there would have been ongoing folly. He stopped rain where otherwise would have come forth normally. He granted sight where blindness would have persisted. He granted the ability to walk where paralysis would have lingered. He brought peace out of perpetual war. He made ministries fruitful where they would have been a failure. He humbled kings where there would have been nothing but ongoing pride. He saved sinners and granted repentance where nothing but death and rebellion ruled. In first John 14, or in John 14, Jesus promised his followers, whatever you ask in my name, this I will do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. Picking up on this, John wrote in his epistle, first John 5, and this is the confidence that we have toward them. This is prayer, Grace Church. This is the nature of prayer as the people of God. And we have this, this is the confidence we have toward him, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And if we know that he hears us in whatever we ask, we know that we have the requests that we have asked of him. And of course, our passage for this morning in James, James wrote, the prayer of the righteous person has great power as it is working. Passages like these, and there are many more in the Bible, teach us that prayer is significant and that God uses the prayers of the faithful to accomplish things that otherwise wouldn't happen. All right, prayer is significant. We see it everywhere in the Bible, commanded and modeled. It's significant in that it, at its very core, it is about fellowship with God, the purpose for our lives, and it is significant in that God uses it to do things that otherwise wouldn't happen. My hope in sharing this with you is that you'd consider these things carefully carefully what the Bible really does say about 
prayer in order that we would grow to pray as God calls us to, in a manner pleasing to God, in a manner consistent with who he is and who we are. The end goal, once again then, is that we'd all grow this morning to pray, to be marked by prayer, to be marked by a people who see our dependence upon God in all things and our need for him to work, for anything good to happen, for as a people who see the greatness of God working all around us and look continually to celebrate that in prayer. But that then leads us as well, which I imagine many of you are feeling already, to the mystery of prayer. That all sounds fine. Everything you just said sounds great, actually, Pastor Dave. But it seems a little more complicated than that, doesn't it? The Bible repeatedly teaches that God means his people to pray. In fact, the Bible repeatedly commands God's people to pray. That couldn't be much clearer, I don't think. Likewise, it's clear in the Bible that prayer fits perfectly with certain aspects of who God is and who we are. Praying to God makes total sense in light of the fact that God is omnipresent. That is, he's always present to hear our prayers. He's, he's present everywhere always that he can hear us. He's omnipotent. That is, he's fully capable of answering everything we ask for. He's omniscient. He, he, per- he perfectly knows the best answer to every prayer. He's loving. That is, he delights to hear his people come to him in prayer. He's good. That is, his answers to our prayers will always be best. And he's kind. He's patient when we pray goofy. <laughs> he's patient patient when we pray foolishly. The fact that we, that's God's nature, the fact that we are sinful and needy and weak and ignorant and dependent and vulnerable means that calling on a God like the one I just described is the most obvious thing in the world. We need lots of help and he's able to give it. We need lots of love and he freely offers it. Our days need mercy and grace. He is a God of all grace and mercy. And so talking to him in prayer makes total sense. In particular, the kinds of prayers that confess our sin and acknowledge the unmatched glory of God fit perfectly with God's nature and ours. So too do the kinds of prayer that give thanks to God for his marvelous works, for they're all around us continually. But at the same time, and again, I imagine any of you who have ever prayed have felt this. At the same time, there are certain other aspects of God's nature and ours that make certain kinds of prayer and the way God uses them mysterious. I'm talking specifically about prayer that asks God to change the course of events. The kinds of prayers that we just considered whereby God uses them to do things that otherwise wouldn't happen. Well, what, am I, what, do, what do I mean specifically? What is it about God's nature and ours that seems incompatible with this kind of prayer? On our end, it's the exact aspects of our nature that I just listed that make certain types of prayers strange at best. The fact that we are as fallen and as limited and as ignorant as we are means that... <laughs> Asking that anything in the universe would change according to our will and our wisdom and our perspective and our desires is in a really very real way absurd. Just parents, how many of you have a two-year-old? Just just think for a minute. 
how how wise would it be to put that two-year-old in charge of planning the family vacation and then overseeing the navigation on your way there and the execution of it and then getting you back home? How 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 wise would you be if you were to do that? Well, here's the thing. If you understand the nature of God and our fallen nature, if you understand that, to ask a two-year-old to do that is about a million times more responsible than to ask God to adjust anything on account of our selfish, fallen, and short-sighted perspective. The Bible even highlights this. The same Bible that commands us to pray and tells us that God uses it says things like when we question God, who are you, O man, to answer back to God? It tells us that the, the wisest wisdom of man is the folly of God. I'm going to read a, a little bit longer of a passage in Job. And I want you to hear this. This is God highlighting his nature compared to man's. And as you hear this, think, why would we ask God to do anything different in the world than what he already means to do? God asks Job, have you entered into the springs of the sea or walked in the recesses of the deep? Have the gates of death been revealed to you or have you seen the gates of deep darkness? Have you comprehended the expanse of the earth? Declare if you know all of this. Where is the way to the dwelling of light? And where is the place of darkness that you may take it to its territory and that you may discern the paths to its home? Have you entered into the storehouses of snow? Or have you seen the storehouses of hail, which I have reserved for the time of trouble, for the day of battle and of war? What is the way to the place where light is distributed or where the east wind is scattered upon the earth? Who has cleft a channel for the torrents of rain and a way for the thunderbolt to bring rain to a land where no man is, on the desert in which there is no man? to satisfy the waste and the desolate land and to make the ground sprout with grass? Has the rain a father, or who has begotten the drops of dew? From whose womb did ice come forth, or who has given birth to the frost of heaven? Can you bind the chains? It's a constellation. Or Or loosen the cords of Orion? Can you lead forth a word I can't pronounce in their season? Or can you guide the bear? Again, more constellations with its children. Do you know the ordinances of the heavens? Can you establish the rule on the earth? Can you lift up your voice to the clouds that a flood of waters may cover you? Can you send forth lightnings that they may go and say to you, here we are? Who has put wisdom in the inward parts or given understanding to the mind? Who can number the clouds? by wisdom, or who can tilt the water skins of the heavens? When the dust runs into a mass and the clods stick fast together, can you hunt the prey for the lion or satisfy the appetite of the young lions? When they crouch in their dens or lie in wait in their thicket, who can provide the raven its prey when the young ones cry to God for help and wander about for a lack of food? The point, of course, is that we know nothing compared to God. Our greatest wisdom, again, is God's folly. So what sense does it make for us to ask God to change anything that he means to do on earth? Even more to the point, though, 
is the mystery surrounding this kind of prayer and God's nature. To these hypothetical questions that God asked Job, the answer to every one of them is no. I wasn't there. I don't know these things. I don't understand how this works, Job needed to say. But while the answer for Job and all of us to every one of these is no, the answer for God for every one of them is yes. It points to the unimaginable wisdom of God. Grace, God is God. He is king over all. He rules over every aspect of his creation. Rooted in his very essence is the fact that God leaves nothing in the universe to chance. There is nothing that happens out of his good, eternal purposes. God is filled with all wisdom and knowledge. His purposes are sure. His promises are certain. He does not change his mind, the Bible tells us. His every way is perfect. In Ephesians 1.11, Paul describes God as the one who works all things according to the counsel of his will. Proverbs 19.21 says, Many are the plans in the mind of a man, but it is the purposes of the Lord that will stand. In light of who God is and who we are, how does it make sense for us for us to ask God to change anything? And in light of how God works to govern the universe, what good do our prayers do? Again, prayer is significant, but it is also mysterious. What are we to make of that? Two simple things. First, like children, we trust. We trust God. The Bible is filled with mysteries like this, but given who God is and who we are, how could it not be? How could God be as high as he is and us as low as we are in relation to him and there not be mystery? The simple fact is we don't understand how this type of prayer works. But we do understand this. God commands his people in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving. Let your requests be made known to God. And so we obey in faith. The Bible says that it is good for us to make our requests known, and so we do. The Bible says that this brings joy to God, and so we do. The Bible says that God uses them to change things, and so we do. And second, this is only true for those who are in Christ. It is because Jesus goes before us and the Spirit lives in us that God accepts our prayers and works through them. Apart from Jesus, we have no hope that God will hear us. Apart from Jesus, there's no merit to our prayer at all. Apart from Jesus, we have no access to God. Apart from Jesus, we are his enemies. But in Christ, we are his children. And God loves to hear from his children. And he loves to respond in blessing. The heart of our prayers are simple trust in God. Trust that he understands what we don't. Trust that he can work in ways that we can't make sense of. And so God invites and even commands his people to pray and ask. And so we do. All that brings us to the specific statement made by James. The prayer of a righteous person has great power at its working. I hope it's easy for you to see that there's nothing new in those words. All of them are wrapped up in everything we've just covered. God does great things through the prayers of those who have the righteousness of Jesus And so we pray when we are suffering, when we are cheerful, when we are sick. We pray when we are lonely and excited and well. We pray when we want God to grant relief and sustain our gladness and heal our sickness and meet us in our pain and commune with us in our loneliness and fill us with the knowledge of his presence, save our unbelieving child or neighbor, change our appetites or mortify our flesh. 
to provide what we need and care well for the people of Grace Church and strengthen our missionaries and comfort our mourners and fight for justice and humble the proud and hold back our enemies and every other request that we have. We pray in these ways not because we understand perfectly how they fit with God's nature and ours. We pray these not because we know for sure what God will do with them, not because we want to override God's perfect plans, but because God commands us to. Because God promises that for all who hope in Jesus, there is great power in them. And because by doing so, we take part in the fullness of life that God offers us in Christ and fellowship with him. And so in conclusion, there always will be mystery surrounding the significance of prayer. But we pray anyway. We pray biblically. That is to say, we pray as the Bible calls us to. In fact, we ought to pray the Bible. Your main prayer practice ought to be to read a passage in your Bible and then respond to it in prayer. The Bible is God's word to us. Prayer is our response back to him. It's part of why we pray as elders to provide an example of that, praying through a passage of the Bible every week. Second, pray personally. As I mentioned, pray in the knowledge that God is with you. He delights to hear from you. He loves for you to come to him and talk to him. Pray knowing that God is eager to hear in the same way and more than you are on your best days glad to hear from your children. You're praying to a real person who's really with you, who really loves you, who cares more about what you're coming to him with than you ever will. Third, pray expectantly. Our passage in James teaches this. So does the rest of the Bible. We ought to pray expecting God's power to be unleashed through our prayers. Either earlier, James expounded by commanding us to pray not in doubt like double-minded people do. The expectation isn't that God will do exactly what we ask, but that he'll make his power and presence to bless known whenever we pray. Fourth, pray consistent, or pray constantly. Again, it ought to be our native tongue. While we're driving and walking and with friends and at church and at our kids' sporting events and watching TV and when we wake up and when we lie down, we ought always to be in conversation with God and adoring him and confessing our sins and giving thanks and asking him to intervene. As you notice something right or wrong, praiseworthy or broken, ordinary or miraculous, tell God about it and ask him to work in it. Fifth, pray systematically. Most of our prayers will be spontaneous if we're in right fellowship with God. It is good also, though, and right to ask consistently and systematically for the things we're most charged to care for, our own health of our soul, our soul's health, the health of our family, for one another at Grace Church and for our leaders, for our missionaries and our neighbors, our unbelieving family and friends. Have a prayer journal. Check back and on it and update it often. And lastly, here's a bonus one. Pray corporately. Pray with others. Let your best relationships and friendships be marked by prayer. Praying together for God's will to be done. Share your burdens and carry those of others in prayer. Share stories of God's faithfulness and the prayers that he answered. Grace, let us be a people who pray in Christ, in the power of the Holy Spirit. Let's close by praying together. The words that Jesus taught us to pray. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts 
as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. 